Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The price of success is hard work, dedication to the job at hand, and the determination that if we win, or lose. We have applied the best of ourselves to the task at hand, is a quote from the renowned NFL coach Vince Lombardi, known for being a highly talented motivator and leading the Green Bay Packers to five championships. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, an exceptional Australian swimmer who won the gold medal in the 1500 metre freestyle at the 1996 Olympics from lane eight becoming the first Australian since Dawn Fraser to defend an individual Olympic championship. Our guest today is two-time Olympic gold medalist Kieran Perkins, OAM, President of Swimming Australia and Chief Executive Officer of Australian Unity Bank. One of Australia's biggest sporting heroes, Kieran broke 11 world records and won medals at three consecutive Olympic Games, with his final games occurring in front of a home crowd at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Kieran was previously an executive at National Australia Bank and has served as a director of the Australian Sports Commission, the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, the Starlight Children's Foundation and the Anzac Foundation. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in Spain, Zimbabwe and the United States, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In today's episode, Kieran talks us through his illustrious career. From the accident as a child that sparked his love and passion for the sport he dominated, to almost abandoning the final of the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games. We also hear about his transition from swimming to banking and how he navigated the difficulties of retirement from an athlete's perspective. Finally, he shares with us insight into what drives athletes to succeed, a quest that goes beyond the eight lanes. So sit back and enjoy the never-ending pursuit of excellence. Kieran, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. How does a world champion, an Olympic champion, come to the point of almost abandoning the final and the opportunity to win another medal in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics? It's a hell of a story, and <laughs> we could talk for hours about it, but I think the, uh, 
Now, the core that it gets down to is just recognising that actually prior success and all of the skills and knowledge that you have built up through that success is not a guarantee of future success, especially when it is so easy for us to get a little bit um, sidetracked, take things for granted. You'll often hear in sport athletes talking about winning the first one was hard, but the second one was much, much harder. And it's the going from the hunter to the hunter type thing. And for me, leading into Atlanta, I, in the first time in my career, built up all this stress with myself that if I didn't win, I wouldn't be the Olympic champion anymore and the the, the public wouldn't love me and mum wouldn't talk to me anymore and all, all these sorts of crazy, irrational things build up in your mind. And when actually the thing that got me there in the first place was always being really confident about the fact that if I did my best, that was all that anyone could ever expect of me, including myself, and that I could and should be proud of that. So do your best. Here I am defending my Olympic title and I'm worried about the consequences of failure that relate to everything other than that. And that was um, a hard lesson to learn in a pressured environment, but I did get out the other side of it, thankfully, and was able to you know, rely on that experience, knowledge, skill and everything that I'd built up, but um, really bringing it back to that core, simple message, which was, you know, for me, if I wanted to perform at my best under pressure, um, the thing that I needed to be most focused on was was holding myself accountable for my best and delivering my potential. If I did that, everything else becomes secondary and is what it is. So is it true that you walked around the stadium just to sort of think that through? Is that Was that a bit of a, a tall tale? Not well, generally, that's absolutely true. So, you know, one of the things that I learned or practiced, I suppose, as a kid was how to control your nerves. You know, okay. I, I often joke with people as a, as a youngster, you know, first thing in sport, how do you control your nerves? And it's a balance. Vomiting in the corner is bad. Not caring at all is bad. There's a, there's a middle ground where you're anxious, you've got a little bit of adrenaline, but it's completely in control and you're able to get the best out of yourself. And for me, when I was young, I I guess you'd say I developed a tactic where if I started to get too nervous, if I started to feel myself getting a little bit anxious and, and, and out of control, fight or flight instinct was moving towards flight. Yeah, okay. Um, walk around and distract myself. Just, you know, talk to someone, look at the birds and the trees. Yeah. Anything to distract myself from that moment in time. Let the adrenaline metabolize out of your system. And then once you're back in control again, go back to what matters most, right? And so I did go for a walk. I went and spoke to some uh, um, uh, teammates I knew. There's a cameraman who was a mate of mine that was there. Um, and just, and it was all everything but the sport. Like, don't talk to me about the swimming this afternoon. You know, where'd you go last night? What'd you have for dinner? Um, how's everyone at home? Just, just real distraction therapy. Yeah. And once you calm down, you're all ready to fire up again. And that was, yeah, so that was it. So, how long before the actual final was the walk? Uh, this was probably about three hours before the final. You know, wow. I'd, um, what what triggered it? Well, I was actually getting a massage from a physio to straighten up as as I constantly needed. And as I was laying there on the bed, I started panicking and thinking about the race and the nerves were building and that kind of out of control energy that that gets you to that point where you you have had that complete uh, amygdala hijack, as it's called, and you're you're in panic mode built up on me. And and, and as I was laying there, I had this kind of mental slap moment where I say, you idiot, if you stay this nervous, you're going to fail. What the hell's wrong with you? You're the defending champion. This isn't your first time at the rodeo. Sort yourself out. What the hell's wrong? And um, that's kind of when I descended back into the, right, how did you use to control your nerves conversation? And it it got me there. And did you think about, was it all about the fun of swimming again? 
No, not really. It was probably more the why are you here and, and what is it that you expect from yourself. So why were you there then? Because I wanted to see how good I could be. I wanted to see how fast I could swim. And my whole career had been built around that. You know, I think one of the things people assume that because I became an Olympic champion, I must have been from the first time I jumped in the pool, a great swimmer. Actually, no, I am the least sporting person you're likely to come across. I've got no hand-eye coordination to save myself. I can't run. I'm not naturally fast in the water. Um, Everything that I built in my sporting career was through lots and lots of long-term hard work. And when you start out and you're young and, you know, lots of kids are very talented and they try things and they're successful at it and everyone's going, ooh, ah, look at them, aren't they amazing? Um, You know, you go one of two ways if you're not that person, if you're the kid that's coming last all the time. You either hate it because you don't enjoy coming last and the ridicule and all of the things that come with that or it makes you almost completely irrationally determined to push and see how good you can be. And so, and and influence of family, coach and others. But for me, it just became this real hardcore focus on, I want to see how fast I can swim. It doesn't matter if I win. It doesn't matter if I come last. It doesn't matter who I'm racing against or who the people around me are and what their reputations are and all of that. It's actually just how fast can I be? And that that's kind of a never-ending pursuit of of excellence that really drove me in my swimming career. Because even Mm. when... You know, I did get to that point where I was breaking world records or, you know, winning medals internationally. Every race that you come out of, you know, there's a conversation that happens with your coach, which is what worked, what didn't, and how are you going to do it better next time? And once you've had that conversation, the how are you going to do it better next time is the only thing you talk about from then on because the race is history. It's happened. I can't change it. I can't do anything about it. Um, I was there. I know what occurred. But I've got this thing that I'm working on, this next step, this growth, this this learning opportunity. And that that drove me through my swimming career. And I think it's 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 really fascinating. Like most of us actually, when you think about what you were like as a kid, we're like that. As a kid, you fall over, you hurt yourself, you try again. Like you just you just do it. You don't even contemplate whether you should or not, you just do. And and as we get older, there's a moment in time somewhere along the journey where the risk of consequence overwhelms the joy in trying and and when that balance tips that's when we become you know conservative we hold ourselves back we start to doubt ourselves we don't push ourselves to to, to try to continue to break our own personal new ground and um you know for me in my swimming career i guess that moment where i got really challenged about am i willing to risk um everything to see how good i can be kind of hit me at that moment of the, you know, defending my Olympic title, which is, which is you know, an interesting place for it to happen. But um, thankfully, uh, I, you know, I had a lot of good support around me. I'd had a lot of good people that had helped me get to well, build the skill base that I had. And I just needed to remember the, um, you know, the value in it and use it and not just discard it because I thought I was too good or that because it was a de- your defending champion, it's different, you know. Who you are and how you get the best out of yourself is is irrelevant to context. Um, what context can do is is drive you away from really pulling that from yourself when it matters most. Yeah, but you weren't in lane four or five either when you finally got up on, on the blocks, were you? No, I was in lane eight. And in some respects, I'd look at it and say that was probably the luckiest thing that happened to me in Atlanta. You know, one, one of the funny things when you talk about it, and assuming we take it for granted because it just is, but people that don't know the sport really well, 
the lanes are all exactly the same. They're all 50 metres long. They're all two and a half metres wide. They've all got, you know, big round lane ropes on either side of them and the, the water's the same. It doesn't, funnily enough, it doesn't restrict itself to the lane it's in. It moves. So, you know, the pool, every lane is equal. There is no difference. What comes into it, of course, is that the fastest qualifiers are in the middle of the pool. And so the general assumption is the best athletes are always in the middle. But for me, you know, I had a shocking heat and, you know, really hit most of my worst kind of moments of consequence overwhelming my intelligence in the heat. But all the training and effort and preparation that I'd put in, in in my life leading up to that moment actually got me there. You know, one of the things I, I, and sport people talk about, but I often say is that, you know, one of the inescapable truths of human beings, all human beings, no matter how bright you might think you are, is that we all, under intense pressure, revert to our worst practiced habit. Yeah, right. It's just a fact of life. doesn't matter who you are, guaranteed, under intense pressure, your worst practiced habit is the best you can deliver. And one of the things about a sport like swimming is that we do an incredible amount of volume, an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of training to practice being perfect so that your worst practiced habit is actually excellence and is really good. Now, the reality of an Olympic final, for instance, is, is the difference between being the very best and being an also ran is, you know, a couple of 0.0 somethings of a percent. So your worst practiced habit, even if it's close to perfection, isn't going to get you near a medal. But because I had that moment in the heat, um, my worst practiced habit was still good enough to get me in the final. And then, you know, the final gave me the opportunity to really get my head right and get around it. And in many respects, being in lane eight turned out to be a godsend because one of the risks for me in the race was that I got caught racing Dan. Dan Kowalski was my main competitor at the time, great Aussie athlete. And, you know, Dan and I were very different athletes. I was someone who needed to go out fast, set a pace, and I could hold that pace until my heart exploded. Whereas Dan was the sort of athlete that started slow and would build and build and build and build through the race and get quicker. If I'd got sucked into racing him and allowed him to dominate the race pace, he would have beaten me easily. But because I was in my eight, I couldn't see him and possibly he couldn't see me either. Um, It forced me to just focus on me and doing my thing and, and executing my perfect race plan, which for all of us in life, if you execute your best race plan, you'll get the best out of yourself. But if you try to beat somebody at their own race plan or beat them at their own game, actually your chances of success are a lot lot less. So, um, you know, being in lane eight, being isolated, I just, you know, pretty much closed my eyes and got on with with delivering what I needed to deliver and um, and it was enough. Up to that point, so between 92 and 96, athletes rely a lot on confidence. Was your training as good as you hoped it to be or did you let yourself down a bit before that? So 92 to 94, exceptional. You know, when I raced in 92, first Olympic Games, won a gold medal. At that point, I'd not won a world championship or a Commonwealth Games gold medal. I'd silvered in both of those championships. And so we had the Commonwealth Games and the world championships in 94. And so I I still had that hunter mindset leading into those because I wanted to win them. I wanted to, you know, reach that summit. After I achieved those in 94, Um, I came out of that dreaming about winning in Atlanta and defending my Olympic title. And as a consequence, I spent, you know, almost 18 months dreaming about something that was a long way away that actually 
had some precedent conditions that needed to be met before I had the opportunity to even be there. Um, and, you know, I, I woke up in Sydney in, um, uh, in April of, in 96, the morning of the um, trials. Yeah. And it was at that moment I came to the startling realisation that if you don't win the final tonight and make the team, you won't even be in Atlanta to have the chance to swim in the heat, to have the chance to swim in the final. You know, I'd taken such a long-term view about this, this end game that I'd stopped caring enough about today and, and, and doing what matters most today. And, and again, you know, there's edges of these things. Like in that Olympic environment, you know, I was still giving 99% every day, but that 1% is the difference between stardom and also ran, you know. Deep down, you know you're, not, you're missing out of that 1%. You know you're not giving it. Look, I think, yes, you do. Um, I, you know, I think from a psychology perspective, what's really fascinating is your is humans' capacity to justify things to ourselves. You know, uh, oh, I don't feel quite right today or oh, I get a little bit of a niggle or um, I don't need to, you know, eat that today because, you know, I, 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 I'll eat better tomorrow. Like the, there's just all these little, every minute of every day, there's these little choices you make. And each of those choices, you can make the best choice or nearly a good choice or a bad choice. And each of them individually are easy to justify. And it's easy to sort of have it drift because when you add them all up, they turn into big, big consequences if you've continuously made lots of little poor choices. And, you know, I, I made a lot of little poor choices through that period of time that, um, you know, I knew deep down weren't great, but I, I guess a bit of arrogance, a bit of confidence, a bit of, um, you know, belief in yourself that it'll be all right. You know, I can I can work through that, and I'll have time. I've got time um, until you wake up and you realise that you didn't work through it and you didn't have time. And that's what starts playing at you, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And then the undermining of your confidence, you know, um, for everybody is is different. I was a very confident swimmer because I trusted that I'd done the work beforehand, and I knew one of my great skills was performing when it mattered most under pressure. Yeah. And in the lead up to Atlanta, I actually didn't do any of those things right. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was quite, the, uh, quite the social experiment I played on myself, which uh, thankfully turned out all right in the end, but certainly uh, caused a lot of heartache and pain on the way. Was it the proudest moment in the sporting career? Um, it was the proudest uh, win. It was the biggest test of me personally. It was the race that I came out the other side of it and really, really, really felt like I had overcome, you know, my own adversity to to achieve in that moment in time. The very best pure swim, though, the 94 World Championships, the 400 metres freestyle, that's the best race ever. Like, that's the only swim in my entire career that I came out the other side of that race and thought, wow, I don't know how far, how I did that. I don't think I can do better. Um, it's the only time ever in my, my career that I felt that way. So that, that's always the best swim. All right. Going all the way back. So you've got no hand-eye coordination. You're not a good sports person. How did we start in swimming? I'm a Queenslander, born and raised. And uh, in the 70s in Queensland, everybody swam and everybody did sport. You just did. It was always a fascinating thing, you know, as, as I became a parent where there's all these these questions about what sport will you do? Will you do sport? Should you or shouldn't you? And all this stuff. Whereas in when I grew up, nobody asked that question. It was you just did sport because you did and everybody did and it was normal. I, look, I did everything. I did running, um, cricket, soccer, played AFL, um, not all at the same time, of course, there's over the years, um, gymnastics, tennis. I mean, you name it, I gave everything a crack. Um, 
with, you know, one consistent outcome in all of those experiences, which was it wasn't enjoyable. I was very poor at them. And being often um, those sports where the performance is very openly on display all of the time, you know, that, that microscope and that environment made it very difficult for me to see the joy and to see through the activity to kind of go, I'm actually having fun doing this in the first place. And started in primary school as a five-year-old in Queensland starting grade one. I could not drown, but I couldn't swim the strokes. And so PE, summer, start of school, everyone learns how to swim. That was, that was just normal. So yeah. we learned how to swim. Um, and, you know, I actually enjoyed the challenge of it because it was my personal challenge to improve and get better, to start to learn the strokes and, and then, you know, swim across the pool unaided and then 25 metres, 50 metres. Like there was just always the next challenge and the next challenge and the next challenge to work for. And we also had a swim club at the school, Indooroopilly State Primary School in Brisbane and mm-hmm. um, had its own pool. And on a Friday night, anyone could turn up and swim. As long as you could do the stroke properly, um, you could have a crack and you were always racing against people of the same standard as you, not not age or gender, oh, okay. but best time standard. Um, and so I started going down on a Friday night. I liked the environment. I enjoyed the people. And every time I got in the pool and swam, it was a tight contest because I was racing people, my capability. And at the end of the race, they'd, you know, chalkboard on the end of the pool where they'd write up your time. And every race became an opportunity to see if I improved or not. You know, was that better than the last time? And um, and that kind of was the the trigger that got me hooked. As a nine-year-old, boys being boys, my brother and I messing around at home one night on a weekend, um, I ran through a plate glass door and um, severed the calf muscle in my left leg. Um, All right, severed. Amazingly didn't – I mean, I, I almost bled out. Um, I amazingly didn't bleed out and didn't – cut any of the nerves in my leg and was by millimeters um but to after got out of hospital the rehab i had to do was running in the water and and doing kicking to strengthen my calf muscle again without putting too much physical tension on it and tearing it and the only heated pool near where we lived at that time was um a local swim school was a john crew swim school and i started going down two uh, two or three afternoons a week for rehab and basically never left. And Mr. Crew was my coach from then until uh, when I retired as a 28-year-old um, uh, after three Olympics and marriage, two kids, and everything else that happened along the way. Did you always call him Mr. Carew? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I was a nine-year-old when I started training with Mr. Carew, and as a nine-year-old, it's Mr. Carew. I, I guess the thing that, you know, was fascinating, it didn't matter, like, you know, I mean, I was a 28-year-old father of two going over to his house for barbecues on the weekends because my kids were like his grandkids. And my kids are calling him Mr. Crew. I'm calling him Mr. Crew. But my ex-wife was calling him John. Um, and everyone else, like, and we'd go on Australian teams and everyone that didn't train with him would call him John. And it freaked me out. I hated it because, like, hey, that's Mr. Crew to you. Don't you know? Show some respect. But, yeah, look, he always was, always will be. Um and that's uh, that, that's where he sits in my uh, my brain. Why was he so special? Mr. Crew was one of these extraordinary people who was on his own never-ending quest to better himself. Um, you know, I, I remember him telling stories about when he first started swimming coaching. And look, this, he was a boiler maker. He worked on the whaling station in uh, Moreton Bay. 
as a young man. He was a surf lifesaver. Like he was just one of these guys who was always working and doing things, but he had this passion um, to coach. And, you know, he, I, I always remember him telling stories about how as a young guy, he went, he got himself to Sydney and basically did a, a free apprenticeship with Harry Gallagher and other Olympic legend coaches of the time, just because he'd turn up every day and be there. You know, there was no employment or payment. It was, you know, this guy keeps turning up and Harry's sort of saying, well, if you're going to be here, you may as well learn something and and doing that apprenticeship. But then it extended beyond that. He passed away um, quite a few years ago now, but I even remember he had a stroke um, in that last year of his life and um, was, was bed bound. Like I remember going to his house one day and he's in the hospital bed, not really able to communicate well, recovering from the stroke propped up in front of the AFL, watching what they were doing, learning, like, you know, yeah, right. just looking for little little tips, messages, ways that you could extract performance out of people. It didn't matter what the endeavour was, he was always looking for that opportunity. And, and um, you know, that, that work ethic and that inspiration was deeply meaningful to me. But I think the other thing that, you know, um, was definitely very core to how our relationship survived as long as it did because, you know, anybody that has a coach for that long in a high-pressure environment like that, you only survive as a relationship because of the effort you put into the relationship and the respect and the trust that you have. Yes. And one of the things, and that was core to who we were, you know, we had agreed roles, we knew how to communicate with each other and that communication was incredibly important. And, um, you know, that trust was something that we, we always leveraged and worked on and, and, and um, built. And, you know, so it didn't matter what he asked me to do, I would always do it. If I didn't understand it or believe that it was the right thing to do, we could always talk about it respectfully in the right moment. And it didn't really matter what happened in our sporting career. We each always knew that the other person was there for all of the best intent to see how good we could be. And that was um, an absolutely hugely successful combination. And had Mr. Carew ever taken an athlete to anywhere near the Olympic Games beforehand? He had. Um, he'd had a couple of Olympic representatives and had also coached a world record holder, but never never really actually had, um, I guess, what you'd call public recognition. You know, he, he was a, an intensely humble guy wasn't interested in self-promotion or, or doing any of that. And in fact, he ran his own swim school, pretty much all of his swim coaching career. And that was, you know, that's how you make money. That's how you support yourself. So you can go do your elite coaching, which is your vocation. Yes. And so, you know, he was always so committed to running the swim schools and making sure that the, the squads that came out of that were successful, that, um, you know, I think there was probably multiple opportunities he had in his career where maybe he could have, pursued more of a dedicated professional elite coaching path, but yep. he didn't believe in doing that only and wow. was far more uh, far more connected to the idea of bringing people through and turning them into champions, not inheriting them and hoping to get the last, last mile out of them. What about you? Did you get approached by others to say, look, this gentleman's a terrific fellow, he's a great coach, but he doesn't specialize in just when you just said elite performance why don't you come meet Billy or Harry over here or Mary, who have been doing it for a number of years? I think we could take you to the next level. Should we have a chat? Did you get tapped many times? Many times, many times. And, you know, um, 
you know, it's fascinating when I look back on it now because as a corporate guy, you know, some of the elements of what drove all this stuff is is so common now in success, right? So I got tapped on the shoulder many times from locals and international. In fact, by the time I finished high school, I had a, a number of different offers to go to the US, um, into the collegiate system um, and all of that. And I never, I never deeply um, entertained it, but the thing that was always really fascinating was when you talk to some of these other coaches or the people that were trying to leverage you into those other coaches, the one thing that always got in the way was culture and that relationship piece, you know. And, I, and like there were coaches back in the day who um, were very famous and very successful, but let's be frank, were complete assholes and completely narcissistic and out of control. And you just look at them and go, no, I don't really like you as a human being. So why would I? Why would I train with you? You know, even if you were a better coach, technically, um, you know, other examples of coaches where, you know, they would do things like be abusive or they would uh, pit people against each other yeah. um, and create these really divisive environments where people were, you know, trying to claw and scratch each other to death to to be successful. Um, and the list goes on, like all, all of these different environments and each of them have value for different people. But for me personally, I, that just never worked. You know, I, I wanted to trust and respect my coach implicitly. Yeah. I wanted to have a group of athletes around me who I connected with in the activity. We didn't have to be friends. We didn't have to have love-ins and, and, and all that. But when we turned up to the pool, we each had an agreed attitude, culture, support network, behavior, leadership that we all adhered to that drove us to be the best we could be. And the thing that, um, you know, I often look back on, which a lot of people are surprised about, is in, in Mr. Carew's squad, I never had more than two or three other Olympic-level swimmers with me at any one time. And, and, and actually... That only really happened in the back half of my career where everyone wanted to go and train with Karen Perkins coach. Leading, like most of my career, school swimmers, triathletes, masters swimmers, uh, and, the, and those who were aspiring to be, you know, international level swimmers one day. And so massive variances in capability, right? Massive mm. variances in commitment to the goal that they were trying to achieve. But everybody had an absolute aligned commitment to turn up, to support each other, to drive each other to be the best that we could be and ensure that as a group, we would uh, give it our best shot to live our dreams. And, you know, that that made turning up to training easy. That made being there, um, you know, the right thing to do, even, even on the days you didn't want to be there. Because trust me, I'm like every other human being on the planet. You don't wake up every morning in the middle of winter when it's cold and dark and think, oh, my God, I can't wait to get my gear off and go swimming. Like, there's a hundred different things that will roll through your head when the alarm goes off about why staying in bed's the right thing to do. But you always get out of bed because, you know, if you don't turn up, you're letting down those other people. But you also, in the back of your mind, know that when you do turn up, they'll immediately see you're not on, you're not on today. And they'll make it their responsibility to help you get in the right space to make that session valuable and worthwhile because they also know you'll do it for them on their days when they're not not quite right. So if I look at a footy team now or a netball team or any sporting team, they've got the head coach, then they've got the the skills experts coming in, whether it's left foot, right foot, mark, 
past, etc. Did Mr. Carew bring in experts in any form to say stroke, breathing, kick? Did you have that or was it all through Mr. Carew? Um, so, look, it was from a technical perspective, I'd say it was all through Mr. Carew, right? partly because he, he was and probably still is the best technical coach that's ever been in world swimming. Um, stroke and technical efficiency was his real love in, in the sport. And so, but don't get me wrong, he learned from everybody he could as well. You know, I'll, you know, I still remember at times I'd be at training and international meets and he'd be standing, he'd, he'd disappear and, he, and you'd realize you'd find him eventually and work out he's over in the corner because he's having a conversation with an American coach or a Swiss coach or somebody else. And he's always trying to draw knowledge and information out of them and vice versa. But in the areas where he knew he wasn't an expert, absolutely. So we had physiologists coming to the pool all the time. We had you know, like strength and conditioning coach, um, physios, like dietitians, all of those experts, 100%. If he, if he knew he wasn't an expert in it, he would find and then invite those people into, um, into the coached environment. And we, we always had those around us. You made a comment earlier, which I think really epitomizes performance. I perform when it counts. How do you do that? It starts with knowing and being connected to why you're doing what you're doing. Because ultimately, if you really care about what you're doing, it's easier to do it well. And so understanding that why, understanding what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it is core. Then having very specific goals that you're driving out of yourself to ensure that you deliver or, or that you know where you're going and, and what, what it is that you're trying to achieve. But it really, for me, came back to that psychology of wanting to do my best. Because one of the things that I think a lot of us get really lost in is, um, you know, we're, we're very smart and we're really, really good at, at identifying what's wrong or what's in the way or why something can't work. Thing is, if we're honest with ourselves, the vast majority of those things are completely out of our control and there's nothing we can do about them, especially not in the moment, but even in the lead up. There's a lot of stuff that's out of control that we want to complain about um, or, or be concerned about. And if you get caught in that space where you're really focused all the time on what you can't control, you're never going to improve or excel or succeed because you have no responsibility to improve or do things better because it's not your problem, it's somebody else's problem. And so as an athlete, you spend a lot of time really training yourself to focus on what I control what do i own what's my responsibility and what do i need to do to get the best out of myself and then what that leads to is when the moment of the race comes i need i guess um proof that all that effort commitment work support those little things that i did every day and and, and that everyone around me committed to supporting me to do was worthwhile and was the right thing and you know, you draw strength from that because if you trust in that preparation, you trust in that effort and you trust in that work, in most ways, the race is the easy bit. And uh, I, I often tell people the story in 96, I was getting a physio treatment one day and my physio had uh, clearly had enough of me whinging about how sore my shoulders were because he pulled this mathematics stat out of the sky, which he, he didn't do in his head just in that moment. He said to me, you do realize that in, a, in an average training year, you do about 2.96 million strokes per arm per year. And, of course, I went, really? And then I stopped and started thinking through the math. So, okay, how many strokes per lap? How many laps per training? And I go through and like, 
holy crap, that's a, yeah, okay. And of course, then my response is, yeah, right, I'm going to be quiet and go over and do my rehab because no wonder my shoulders hurt. But you think about that in context, right? Yeah. 2.96 million strokes per arm per year. My first Olympics, I trained without a break for six years. Yeah, right. Without a break. Without a break. How many strokes do you reckon I do in a race? 20, 21. A lap? Yes. Yeah, good guess. Uh, 24. <laughs> but 600, right? Yep. So a race, 15 minutes or less, doing 600 strokes perfectly compared to 2.96 per arm per year in the lead up. And when you think about that, you go, I mean, seriously, where's the hard bit? Like, where is the, actually the challenge? Where is actually the place where the blood, sweat, tears, commitment, lessons, you know, all of the stuff that really, truly matters happens? It's in the 2.96. And the 600 in the race is, ta-da, look how good I got. All of this stuff I've done has led me to here. I'm ready. Let me show you. Let me show you how great that is and what it, what it is that I've put together. And I think one of the other really core things about me that that um, that just reminded me of, um, I'm always fascinated by those athletes who talk about the race and how the most important thing in their life is the race, and they hate to lose. And and in fact, you know, training's really awful and boring, and I hate training, but I love to race and I love to win. So what you're telling me is, is that for the hundreds of thousands of hours of work you yeah. do to get to that moment, you hate it, and it's that moment that you love. I was the exact opposite. I actually, nine times out of 10, could have taken a leave in racing. I only raced because I wanted to prove it. I love to train. I love to turn up every day and push myself and flog myself and work with those other people in my squad and in my club and Mr. Crew to see how good we could be. And you know, when I think about my fondest memories in swimming, yes, being on the dice is amazing. Yes, being in the teams was amazing. And they all are memories you have. But actually what I truly loved the most were those nights you'd come home after a big training day and I'd lay in bed and I'd need to lay on my stomach because my shoulders were so sore. If I laid on my back, I couldn't sleep. Um, those days where, you know, you'd get to the end of a training session with your teammates around you and you're all, you, you can't talk to each other. Someone's, you know, vomiting because they just push themselves and they have that kind of constitution and, and you'd look at each other in that moment and the sense of pride and satisfaction that came from knowing we, we, we have done the job today. We have given it all and we've pushed ourselves and, and, and that's going to be valuable because when the race comes and we have that ta-da moment, boy, oh boy, is it going to be a spectacular ta-da. That, but that only comes when you deliver your potential and that, um, that comes from being able to get the best out of yourself under pressure. So what's pain? Just weakness leaving the body? Is that what you say to yourself? <laughs> uh, look, I mean, we, we love all those things. You've got to say to yourself sometimes, don't you? You do, you do. And, and look, the thing that I'm also really cognizant of, and this is something that um, makes a conversation like this a little bit fascinating, is that in reality too, athletes, the really, really, really good ones, we're also just a little bit nuts. Yeah, you've got to be, we don't? actually do love pushing ourselves to the point of, of exhaustion and the point of, pain and suffering and you know the challenge of being able to do those things in that environment is um is so intensely and deeply satisfying you've got to have a you've got to have a pretty deep masochistic streak which drives you to want to do those things to yourself because human beings are designed uh, if it hurts don't do that again yep sports people if it hurts 
hey, that was good. I got to do it again. But you, you also, on as a side note, you also get extremely good at knowing the difference between good hurt or bad hurt. Because when it's bad hurt, you're risk of injury and illness and those sorts of things. So you always, you always very, you become very, very good at walking the fine line of knowing the difference between good pain and bad pain and how to keep yourself just on the edge of the very best pain without it becoming bad and um, destructive. You're not a nice bloke, but then are you? And the only reason I say this is that I know a very good swimmer who was a world champion and won a gold medal. And we had a chat one night and he said, you know, during most of my life, mum and dad dropped me everywhere. Everything was dedicated to one thing, winning. Yep. I was a selfish bastard and I had to be. Is that the truth? Oh, 100%. You you can't achieve those things and not be. And, and I, I don't care what sport you're talking about. To be the very, very best and, and in life, right? Musician, teacher, medical professional, business leader. You know, the ones who do become exceptional and out there on a limb exceptional, um, you have to have a deeply, deeply selfish streak. The bit that often it gets confused with, though, and this is something that I'm actually really quite personally passionate about. Yep. There's a difference between being intensely and deeply selfish and narcissistic. Yes. And the deep narcissists actually are the evil ones. And they have, they, you know, there's bad that comes with that, but because they actually will tip into, and I am so selfish at what I do that I don't care who I hurt or who I destroy in my pursuit. Whereas, um, you know, I think that there are, infinite number of examples of people who have that deep, deep selfishness to be the best they can be, but not at the cost of their humanity and not at the cost of um, the people around them. Because in all honesty, the people around you, for you to be the very best you need to be, actually often have to be willing participants. And if they're not willing participants, life blows up and you're on your own. And once you are on your own, actually being exceptionally successful is almost impossible. What was it like as a school kid? You're getting your name out there. I'm sure the press must have been following this young bloke from Queensland, breaking world records, etc. How did you balance that? So, look, I, I was very fortunate to have a lot of great support around me, you know, um, these people who were helping me, right? And and it came in many forms. You know, my parents who um, mum did drop me and drive me everywhere. You know, breakfast was in the car that I'd eat on the way to school. Um, you know, she picked me up in the afternoon with food to eat before I'd get to training and all of that. Mum and dad dedicated their lives to supporting that. But the school was also very supportive as well. And there were a couple of times, not heat, but a couple of times where I had to miss school to compete or, or um, travel. And they would support that in year 12 in my final year of school. There was a program that was available, and I, honestly, I must admit, I don't know if it still is, where the education department would allow you to split your final year of school over two years so right. that you could pursue other things. And my school supported me for that. So I did um, was it four subjects in, in the first year, of my first year of grade 12 and then three in the second. So I had time to train and go to physio and do that, all those other things. And I was driving by then too. So, you know, I could get myself around. Um, and, but, but the, the, the step back that I'd take from that and what, actually made me ultimately successful um, both in swimming but life after sport. My dad spent all of my youth informing me that it was extremely unlikely that I was ever going to be um, able to earn a living from swimming. Even if I became the very best swimmer that ever existed, 
I was never going to earn enough money to retire on a beach and I could get hurt tomorrow or run over by a bus or whatever and it could all get taken away from me in a moment. And therefore, you must have something to fall back on. You need your education. Culturally, one of the reasons why Mr. Crew was such a role model for me and why my parents chose him initially as my coach was because he refused to let us train if our school studies drifted. Um, Every Saturday morning, we'd have um, a session where we had to turn up. He made us responsible for our own logbooks. Seriously? He he used to give you a logbook and you had to record every lap you did and everything that you did in swimming and your training, but also you had to put your school results in it. And if your school results weren't appropriate for you um, and training was getting in the way, he wouldn't let you train. And that, that was extraordinary, you know, and I think the work ethic and what all that balances out and leads to is, you know, a well-rounded human being. And well-rounded human beings are, a lot, are always a lot more successful than the narrow-minded singular people. Um, it's one of the great failings in a lot of sport um, and a lot of sports people. They have nothing else in their life and they have, they're, they're unable to balance the challenge that they're dealing with emotionally at times because there's no sense of value in who they are in anything else but actually the sport that they're doing. Um, and I think, too, the other thing that I'd add is it gave me um, a broader peer cohort as well because, as I mentioned at the start of the conversation, you know, I was not a particularly sporty guy. So at lunch, I wasn't out in the playground throwing the ball around or playing rugby or doing whatever with a lot of the guys in the, uh, you know, in an all-boys school would be doing. Nine times out of ten, I'd be in the library playing chess with my mates or reading or doing something like that. And um, that was far more interesting to me socially and being with those types of people was far more socially interesting to me than, um, you know, headbutting other blokes and seeing who was tougher. When you started swimming, you started seeing some results. Kieran, what became the motivation then? Is it, I'm going to break records? As you said, you started breaking your own times then I'm going to break records. And then when did you finally, or someone say, mate, you've got real talent on Mr. Crew said, hey, I think we can think a bit bigger than we both thought about this. When did that all begin? And when did you say, I'm in? Mr. Crew used to talk about this after I finished swimming, where he'd say, you know, I, I never really thought Kieran was going to be a, a truly great athlete. He was a, he was a bit of a flip as a, as a young kid, but he, he worked hard and, you know, he was always trying. So that was okay. And um, But I was just one of the numbers. I remember the first time I went to an Open Championships, which happened to be the Commonwealth Games trials for the 1990 Commonwealth Games in Auckland. How old were you then? Uh, 15, I call it. I qualified at 15. I turned 16 just before the, the trials themselves. And I remember having the conversation with Mr. Crew, should I go? And he said to me, well, look, you've qualified. Queensland something will pay for you to go. You never know. You know, you might want to have a crack being on the Australian team one day. So let's let's go. Let's let's take the experience, give it a crack, and we'll see what happens. I came third and made the Australian team. Um, I wasn't on the Queensland target squad at that point. There's this elite group in Queensland called the Target Squad, which is the 20 best athletes in the state who were viewed as being likely to make the Australian team. I'd never been selected or even considered for that because I was miles away. But I made the Australian team and then, oh, hang on a minute. Well, what about that kid? Geez, we better put him on here. And, and look, my career really accelerated very quickly from that. You know, I went from, um, you know, coming second at the age championships to third in the open championships to second in the Commonwealth Games in about um, eight months. And then, you know, within two years was at the Olympics um, winning. And so 
you know, that trajectory was crazy fast and that trajectory was a really more of a, an, a consequence of the, you know, the growth I was seeing as an athlete and, and I guess the benefit that was coming from the work that I did and that, that accumulation of that work that came um, through that period of my career. And every race, I'd stand on the blocks wanting to see how fast I could get. And, yeah, and right. you know, Mr. Crew and I were never big on saying, well, you did a 15 minutes 40 this race, so next race, I think you better do a 15.35. It was, well, your best times are 15.40, you better go quicker. And how much quicker just became a, we'll see. Um, and, you know, you're, you're going into a race where, you know, you're the world record holder and you're the Olympic champion, but is that the is that the fastest you can go? Oh God, no! You know my turns weren't great, and I did this in the fifteenth lap, and I did this on the twenty. And you know you got all this analysis that goes into it that says, no, no, I can do better than that. You train it in, you try to improve, you learn, and then when the race, the next race comes, well, your best time is proof that the works works occurred and that that, that it's um, been worthwhile. And you know. It just became a period of my career where my best time also happened to be the world record. And um, and that was, I mean, it was, I, I still look back on it at times and think, holy man, did I really, I mean, was I actually the best in the world ever that had swum that race? I mean, that's pretty, it's a bit mind blowing really when you think about it in that context. Because as an athlete, it's like, well, I, I did a 14.56 last time. I better, you know, I've done all this work since then. I better go quicker now. But let's see how fast it is. So it sounds like Mr. Carew and you sort of game plan, keep it simple. Oh, look, very much. And, you know, um, there was a balance of we've each got our responsibility and, and we need to play our role. You know, one of the things that um, I, I look back on with great fondness but also a little bit of mirth is that, you know, my pre-race conversation with Mr. Crew extended to him looking at me and saying, good luck, son, you'll be right. I'll see you after. <laughs> And it is funny. And you look at it and you think, man, that's not the most inspirational words I've ever heard from a coach. Now you contrast that to Laurie Lawrence, who'd give you a, an hour of, of spittle-filled screaming and, uh, you know, um, energy compared to Mr. Kerr is very, very different. But, you know, the reason why and the reason why it was successful is because he knew at that moment when I was about to walk away from him to go to the marshalling area, mm -hmm. there was not a single thing he could do to change the outcome. His job had been the weeks, months, years leading into that moment. And when he said that to me, I knew that he was happy and comfortable that he'd done his job and that everything he'd asked me to do, I'd done to the best of my ability and I was ready to go. And And, and, and in that moment when that, unspoken kind of moment of, of um, agreement would come, I'd walk away from him absolutely happy and ready to race because I knew that I, I, he knew I was ready, I knew I was ready, and it was just time to go. Now, what happened in 92 when you came second? The comments were you swam cautiously, which sounds a little bit different compared with going out there to break your, uh, your last time trial. So what, what, what changed that day? So that was in the 400, and yep. in the 400, I never really actually expected myself to be good enough in the 400. I trained for the 1500. I was a 1500 meter swimmer. That was my race. In many ways, the 400 was like a fun warm up to do to make sure when the 1500 came around, I was ready. And in Barcelona, in many respects, I turned up for the final in the 400, and I kind of didn't really believe that I should have been there, and because I'd qualified. I don't know, was I fastest, the second fastest? Anyway, I was a medal, like I was in contention. 
and so I didn't. I just didn't really have the confidence to race the race quite, um, you know, quite as as I guess you could almost say belligerently as I did a fifteen hundred. Where in in the fifteen, it didn't really matter who was around me or what they were or weren't or what people thought they should or shouldn't be. It was my race. I knew what I was doing, and I was going to be fine. The four hundred had more more unknowns for me, and so. I didn't go out as fast as I should have. I, I probably did sort of watch the competition just a little bit more. And, you know, it's, it's that classic mistake I'm, I'm, I um, you know, talked about earlier. You know, I didn't, I didn't run my game plan and what a surprise I came second. I still did my best time, by the way. It wasn't a bad swing, but um, <laughs> I probably could have won it if I'd have, uh, um, if, if I'd have been a little bit more committed to really, you know, going out at all, all, all guns blazing and, and setting a pace that I knew I could hold. Now, I was reading 93 looked like a pretty big year for you. You broke a few world records in the 800 and 1500, but you got asked by Australia to represent us in the bid mm. for the 2000 Sydney Olympics in Monaco. Well, what's the sort of the tale then? What was your role? The, the bid was put together um, by a guy by, um, by the name of Neil Flett, who, who had a business, um, Rogan, and he, he was the presentation master, right? And And... and Back then, the way the Olympics was won was, you know, lots of lobbying and politics in the background, but you also, on the day, had to present just an epic bid proposal. And so Australia, and in 93, Sydney was our third attempt. We tried Brisbane for uh, whatever year it was the first time and failed. Then Melbourne had a crack and failed, and so Sydney was our third and final kind of hurrah. I'd hate to think how much money had been spent up to that point. And so that meant that the, the, the I guess we wanted a perspective of lots of different people in why Australia and Sydney was the right bid to have. And one of those representatives was an athlete. And in the 92 Olympics, I think Australia won 12 gold medals across the board. Yes. Um, but I was one of the few individual gold medalists. But, you know, I'd had a very successful Games and I'd carried the flag in the closing ceremony. And so... From an Olympic perspective, I had a profile in the Olympic movement, um, and so I was asked to be a presenter to give a two two minute and fifteen odd second portion of presentation about why competing in Australia would be make it the best Olympics that that had ever been, with a little bit of theatre as well um, to move the dice for Tanya. And my God, I can't remember her last name, which is very uh, the you know, red hair freckle girl who helped with the presentation. She was amazing. She represented the youth of Australia and why the aspiration to hold the Olympics would be so important for us. And she needed a stool to be seen behind the dice and by the theatre of me removing that and then speaking. But, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience. It was the first exposure I'd had to the Olympic family in that environment, um, in that highly politicised environment. But also for me, it was the first time that I had been coached on how to present, like okay. truly how to present and the thing that I think I look back on it with some, um, you know, fondness is that, you know, I thought I was being trained to deliver that two minutes and nothing else. But actually, I, I was being taught how to present and speak. And there's so much about the way that I was able to then communicate in the years post that that were really beneficial to me that, um, you know, I'll forever be thankful to Neil and the, and the crew that put that together. But that moment when Sydney's name was called out, Everyone's seen the video of John Fay and, and everyone jumping up and down. I was actually sitting directly behind him. I didn't jump up. I sort of sat there in, the, in a bit of stunned silence. 
And so he stood up and no one could see me. But I was there. It was amazing. <laughs> You've seen behind the sort of the corridors of power, I guess, of the Olympics. Murky, what's your, what's your take oh. from it all? So, so murky to be <laughs> impenetrably <laughs> opaque. But um, look, the thing that I, I guess I've, I've come to realise as I've got older, and this is not a... Um, not necessarily makes it right, but, you know, what I've come to understand is that, you know, in, in, a, in an international body like that, that is completely unaccountable to anybody, you only change it from within. Because if you try to be the noisy, um, you know, critical, um, damaging person on the outside, they have defences and capacity to isolate and make you irrelevant in ways that you just can't imagine. Mm. And so if you want to change it, you need to be relevant. And to be relevant, you've got to be on the inside. The hard part is how do you be on the inside and be relevant and not get compromised or get sucked into that culture of just accepting things as being okay? And um, and I think for any... Um, Anyone that gets deeply involved in, in any international governing body like that, it's not, it's not just the IOC, you know, um, you know, you, you name them, they're all the same. Being able to get good people in who can play the politics, who can build the relationships, but who don't become um, indebted to the, the cycle is important. And look, to, let's be honest, politics globally is exactly the same. How do we have faith and trust that, you know, the people who become our elected leaders haven't compromised themselves beyond all morality to get there? Um, and, and that's the, you know, that's the thing that we've got to continue to hold them accountable for in, in, in who we elect. Well, 2021 is coming close. Tokyo is not too far away. But just a couple more questions in the perspective of an athlete. When you stand back and yeah. as you said, it dawned upon you, here I am, I've won the gold, I've broken all the world records, et cetera, et cetera. When all the people come to you and pat you on the shoulder and everything else, or you sit back with those top performance coaches, what is the edge to you? What gave you the edge, do you think? Is it mental? Is it physical? As you said, Mr. Carew said, you train pretty hard, you're a good bloke and everything else, but what's the edge? Look, all of those things that you talked about are elements, right? Like you can't get there unless you're willing to train and do the work. You can't get there unless you've got a, a level of physiological talent, which makes you predisposed to do that activity really well. Um, you've got to have the mindset on a day-to-day -day basis. All, all of them are elements that are really important. Um, hard work and mindset is overwhelmingly the difference. You know, I... I I, I swam against and beat an infinite number of exceptionally more talented athletes than me in my career because talented people rarely, not always, but rarely know how to fight back from failure because they've always succeeded. Um, and really learning how to fight only comes when you're on the ground missing three of your teeth and blood pouring out of your nose. It doesn't come from no one ever laying a glove on you, right? It's obvious. But when you stand on the blocks of the Olympics and that moment comes and you have to deliver in the race, that moment, that moment is entirely mental. You know, I think um, for me, you know, I honestly believe when you line up those eight people in an Olympic swimming final or, you know, um, whichever sport it is, I mean, they've all put the work in. They've all got the talent. They've all had the opportunity. They've all basically got the ingredients, the core 
rough diamond polished within an inch of its life ingredients, in that moment, the difference between the person who succeeds and the person who doesn't is entirely mental um, and how they extraw that potential out of themselves. You know, I always I always have a little inner smirk to myself whenever you hear an athlete talk about, oh, I, you know, I don't know what happened today. I found 110% and I just can't believe it happened. It's like, champion, today's the first time in your entire career you've got close to it, your best. The rest of the time you were just stuffing around and not doing, not not actually really delivering. Today, you nearly, nearly got there. You've got to understand what you did differently today or, or what you perceived differently today that allowed you to deliver that because the real key, the real success comes from when you can replicate that on tap every time you need to perform. Um, and, you know, I marvel at, say, golfers, for instance, tennis yep. players are similar. Yep. You know, they, they take a shot and then they've got that, that gap in between where they're either walking to the next ball or waiting for the next serve. And, and there's, a, there's an on-off switch that comes with that, your ability to, to get your brain right and deliver perfection come down from that enough to be able to kind of relax and prepare and then bang, you've got to be up again. In my game, I only had to come up once, do my 15 minutes, and then I was right after that. And uh, but it's it's you know it's the same thing applied in different ways, but it's 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 definitely all mental. Kieran, you're doing a solo sport. You're the only one representing you. Okay. But yet you represent Australia. So when you go out to the Olympics and they fly out there wearing our, our colours. Is it really a team spirit and does it really help you on the night? So the answer to that is that there can be and if there is, yes. The reality is is that it is very easy to descend into I'm an individual athlete and the only thing that matters is me and I need to do my thing. And it's and it comes with an interesting level of ignorance because as you pointed out earlier, you know, to be the very best in the world, you need a, an army of people behind you all committed and working as hard as you to get you there. There's no, none of it happens on your own ever, which I think is also part of why I love training so much because in that training environment, you're always part of a team. You're always part of a group. You've always got support and others around you helping you get there. The race was the only moment and literally standing on the blocks going is the only moment you're actually on your own. But, you know, um, in my experience, I came into the sport in the late 80s when swimming was very divided. Swimming was very... Um, individualistic in its attitude there was a lot of lot of infighting and, and all that sort of stuff going on and we were also epically unsuccessful if you actually looked at our performances during that period of time you had Laurie Lawrence who trained John Sieben in 84 and Duncan Armstrong in 88 yep. um, and if you were being horrifically brutal about your assessment you'd say the rest of the sport may as well have not bothered because they were the only ones that were really achieving anything extraordinary one of the symptoms and reasons why that was the case is because they were doing it. The sport was very fractured and very individualistic, and there was a lot of a lot of infighting and poor um, culture there. You fast forward that through to Sydney, where Don Talbot, in the in the decade of the '90s, and management and coaches and the sports administrators and everyone involved with swimming was committed to creating a team environment. But you know. Um, left a lot of blood on the floor to get us there. But this culture was ingrained and developed and, and occurred. But by the time we got to Sydney, you know, I'm so incredibly proud to be a part of that group where we we all remember watching the Smashingham Like Guitars Relay. 
Brilliant. Um, when, um, you know, the Australian men's team having America, having never lost it in the history of the Olympics, stood up on the night and won that race when they weren't good enough to win it. Like on best times, they weren't good enough to win it. And, you know, for me, I'll never forget that night because there was 38 Australian swimmers in the grandstand and all of the coaches and managers screaming our lungs out, supporting those four guys in that race, knowing that the only reason those four guys had that opportunity and were able to deliver that is because they had 38 other athletes who had lifted them up and pushed them forward and challenged them and promoted them and, you know, helped them get there as they had done for us. And we shared in that victory, like when they, when Thorpey touched the wall and won that race, there was, there was not one of us that wasn't crying, hugging, screaming, cheering, and sharing in what was just one of the most epic moments of success that I've ever been a part of in my life. And I, I will value that and love that for the rest of my life because I've seen the alternate theory, which is in London in 2012, when Australia was number one ranked in the men's 4 by 100 freestyle relay. And they believed that they were absolutely going to win it. And I sat in the grandstand as a member of the, uh, I was an athlete liaison officer in the Olympic team. And I sat in the grandstand and the race was about to start. And I just had one of these moments where I sort of checked and thought, oh, who else is here? And I looked around and there was lots of green and gold, but there was only two other swimmers in the Australian swimming team sitting in the grandstand watching that race. Yeah. And when they lost, one of them got up, walked past me and said, thank God those pricks didn't win. Serious. And wow. everybody wonders why culture matters. It, like there's no rocket science to this stuff. It is, you know, so yes, for 15 minutes, once every four years, I was on my own. Yep. But every minute of the day, for the other 364 and a half days of the year, I deeply, deeply relied on and valued and needed all of those other people around me. Well, I'm going to jump for a second because you are now president of Australian Swimming, correct? I am, yes. All right. What are you charged to deliver and how are you going to keep that culture? So at its most simple and chorus level, we're charged to deliver um, international excellence in swimming. The reality that we deal with, of course, is that that only occurs when we have an amazing pipeline of talent that is supported and uplifted by an amazing group of exceptional coaches who are backed and supported by a state club district network that enables them to be able to find those incredibly talented individuals and nurture them through their career, which is only enabled by amazing learn to swim and school programs that teach a whole bunch of kids to swim and brings them into our system who are supported by parents and volunteers who are willing to give up their time and um, effort and to support that. And that all starts to get a whole lot more complicated when you uh, ask the question about what does it take uh, or what's our responsibility and what does it take to be successful? But I think from a, you know, from a, a core perspective, it's our responsibility to lead the sport in Australia to make sure that it's as well-funded as it can be and that leadership enables all of our members and our member organisations in the states and territories to um, be able to, to, to operate in an environment which allows them to get the best out of themselves to, to perform. And, um, you know, that leadership means bringing everybody together, creating a great environment where 
our member organisations and the national body are aligned, uh, are working together in a, in a, in a really tight-knit, um, trusting way where we can put aside our individual uh, differences and um, intents to be able to, you know, work together to achieve great things. And that's none, none of that's very easy, but, you know, I, I see that as my responsibility because, you know, one of the things I've been asked many times why you would be the president of Civic mm. Australia, and I can assure you it's not for the pay because it's a volunteer role. It's certainly not for the glory because I'm fairly certain every president by the time they're done is, is not well-loved. Um, but it's because I, I honestly love my sport and I want to see it better when I leave it than it was when I took it over. And that custodianship's really important to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this. It's it's very much about um, making sure that that my custodianship has put my sport in a better place. And um, it's going to be really hard work, but I'm honoured to be able to give my time to do that. Are you happy where it's at at the moment? Of course not. You know, and, and I'd be a pretty poor leader if I was. There's always things to do better. There's always things to improve. And you know, I think. Like starting at the very top, the federal government provides an impressive amount of support to sport, but it's still probably less than 10% of what sport actually needs to be successful at the level internationally that the rest of the country demands from us. Mm-hmm. But it's it's hard work because, you know, um, Olympic sport's not cheap. The team and the coaches and the, the people that are doing the work to get there you know, there's always there's always work that needs to be done to build that culture, to create that alignment, the leadership and the, the work that, that we, we can do. I think they're in a really good space leading into Tokyo. And I'm, I'm very um, comfortable that, that the, the team will, will be able to perform well. But then, of course, who's the next generation and who's coming through and how do we how do we make sure that they're, they're getting there? And one of the, the core elements that's missing for me that, you know, we, we really need to work on um, after Tokyo because I think leading into Tokyo, I've got to let the athletes do their thing. But, you know, if you ask the average Australian on the street to name a current Olympic swimmer, in my experience, they struggle. Yeah. Um, if I tell them some names, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that person. But if you say, name a current Olympic swimmer, oh, does Thorpey still swim? Um, you know, I, I remember Grant Hackett and um, Susie O'Neill was really good too, wasn't she? But holy, I mean, crikey, Susie and I swam 20 years ago. Um, you say Kate Campbell or Bronte Campbell or Ariane Titmus or, or um, Mac Horton, um, and then they, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. But, you know, back in my day, and it, it hurts me a little bit every time I say that, but, I, you know, back when I swam, Guys like me or, or Susie or Sam or Haley or, or Grant or Thorpey, we couldn't walk down the street without being recognised. And that was because Australians in general, the population in general, cared about swimming and they cared about the individuals in swimming and they wanted to see them succeed. I think Australians still actually want to see us succeed in swimming, mm. but because they don't know who we are and because they don't know our stories and because they're not seeing us out and about doing stuff publicly a lot they don't know us and so it's harder to care and that that's a that's a missing element at the moment and it's a really hard thing to get athletes to do and i was i was one of those so i I, i've lived this you're so focused on wanting to succeed yourself and and be a swimmer being a media personality or a commercial personality it's like no no i'm a swimmer like that's not my gig right 
But it's important to have that element to who you are because that drives personal income, which is great because it means you don't have to work. You can actually swim. But it also creates profile and support, which gives the sport commercial opportunities. But it also, and this is the most important leadership piece, which culturally our current leaders have great, great belief in, but haven't been supported to facilitate it well enough, is that we need those leaders to be visible and to be role models and to be loved so that right now there is a whole generation of eight, nine and 10-year-olds that are going, I want to be like Kate Campbell. I want to be the next Ariane Titmus. I want to be the next Mac Horton because in 2032, when Australia has the Olympics, those kids need to be our superstars. And if we're not capturing them now and inspiring them and, and having you know, them, their families, their friends and everybody that knows them, wanting them to be that next generation of amazing athlete. Um, it's very, very hard work for us to find talent and keep it and hold on to it. That's a, that's a gap that I treat seriously and I think we've got to do a lot of work on to support. And you reckon we'll get 2032? Yes, I do. And I think it's, pretty, a, pretty, it's you're pretty a really confident. exciting opportunity for us because you've, you've only got to look at what happened in Sydney, right? In the decade, well, in the seven years leading into the Sydney Olympics, we had a whole generation of our country absolutely invested in, committed to delivering a great Olympics. It brought us together. It created funding and pathways and volunteerism and, and, and generations of people who got engaged in the sport and loved it and have continued to be a part of it that delivered future generational benefit. And while I would say there's varying degrees of success in how we've nurtured that and kept it going, generally actually pretty poor, but, you know, to uplift that and to get us back to that, having an Olympics at home is a great catalyst to make it a lot easier than it would be if we were trying to do it um, without that light on the hill and that, that moment of, um, of tension for people to want to see us be successful in. So, um, you know, I'm really excited by it. We haven't won it yet. Um, there's still a couple of conversations and meetings that need to have, but, you know, I'm pretty confident that as long as the federal and state governments and local councils continue to support it and provide the um, assurances to the Olympic movement that not only will we deliver it, but we'll deliver it well, we'll have those 2032 Olympics and it will be, um, you know, another incredible inspiration and infrastructure building um, future delivery for um, sport in Australia. When's the decision going to be made, Kieran? That's an awesome question, and I wish I knew off the top of my head, but I'm not entirely sure. But the Congress is this year. We'll, okay. I'm pretty sure we'll know in the, within a few months. Okay. Now, leading up to all that, we've got some trials and tribulations just ahead of us regards to Tokyo. Athletes, how are they thinking at the moment? What's the Australian society thinking at the moment about their health and representing us in the Olympic Games? So, look, my, my take on it is the athletes, that's an easy one. What are they thinking? I want to win an Olympic gold medal and I've worked my whole life to get here. Um, don't take it away from me because you people can't get your shit together and work out how to operate society in an environment where there is a difficulty. And I think it's also worth noting as a point to that, one of the things that's really fascinating whenever we start the lead up to an Olympics, in my life experience, the six months before the Olympics, it's nothing but 
it won't work, it's too expensive, the country's not ready, the facilities aren't ready, there's going to be a health crisis. Like all the naysayers are out in full force, loving every minute of their moment in the sun to say all the reasons why the Olympics is bad and shouldn't happen. And then the opening ceremony occurs and all of those people evaporate underneath the overwhelming swell of national pride and interest that comes in seeing our best and brightest competing against the rest of the world to see who can, you know, do extraordinary things in the field of play. And so I've got no doubt whatsoever that the noise is going to intensify in the coming month, but when the opening ceremony starts, um, all of that will just fizzle out and we'll be excited and happy to see our athletes perform. From a health perspective, and this is, um, you know, and I, I, I caveat this by saying this is me, citizen of Australia speaking, not president of Swimming Australia or someone who's apparently um, supposed to have a position of influence that therefore makes me have a view. Um, As a citizen of Australia, I think it's incredible that we've managed to get to this point and maintain such a control over the virus. But to think that we are going to continue to live this way forever is wrong. It is wrong. We are going to destroy our country if we keep the barriers up, if we keep people out, if we keep behaving like eradication is success. Eradication is a fool's game. And I think that, you know, until we're all, until we actually pull our heads out of the sand and go get vaccinated and go and actually start living lives on the basis of there is a virus out there, it's dangerous. There's lots and lots of viruses in the world that are dangerous. But we have to live our lives. We have to do the right thing, support ourselves and our communities to stay healthy, to be protected, but to also be open, inclusive and active. Um, And, you know, the reality is, is that there are lots of sports right now globally that are operating within their bubbles that are very successfully traveling the world, moving people around and doing extraordinary things on the field of play without Armageddon of health crises befalling them and the people that are supporting them. Um, and I, I, I fervently believe the Olympics will be no different if we manage it well, if we're sensible, pragmatic, vaccinate, follow the health guidelines and do all the things that we need to do to protect ourselves and our athletes, they will go to Tokyo, they will be healthy, they will not um, cause very negative health impacts to the um, Japanese people. In fact, the Japanese people at the moment have COVID in in their society. So yeah. I'm not sure how athletes traveling there creates that because they don't they haven't got eradication. But hopefully what it does bring is focus and vision and visibility to what can be achieved if we actually get behind vaccination programs, if we actually maintain health standards and support the, the appropriate health guidelines and let it go. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I would say is it won't be an Olympics like the normal. And, and that, that is a bit of a shame for yes. the athletes who are involved. But, you know, I can assure you they would all prefer to have the chance to race in a different Olympics than no Olympics. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely worth pursuing. And I, and I do believe they will go ahead and I think that they will, will be successful, not through some ignorant optimism, but because human beings when they have the will to achieve something are incredibly good at achieving it and um you know i think the vaccine programs that are happening globally are an awesome example of that pre-pandemic if you'd have gone into any serum laboratory in the world and said hey if we discover a new virus do you think you can get a vaccine developed 
manufactured, approved by global health authorities and set out in a broad um, delivery program in eight months, every single one of them would have said, you're kidding, yeah, exactly. it's impossible. Look what we've done. Kieran, do you still remember the very last competitive swim you had? I do. Where, where was it? <laughs> Sydney Olympics, uh, 1,500 metres freestyle, and um, it was extraordinary, both good and bad, um, extraordinarily good because competing at your home Olympics, at your third Olympics, allowed me to have a perspective that I wouldn't have had if Sydney was my first Olympics. You know, your first Olympic Games, you don't really get it. Like, you don't really know what the Olympics is or really understand how the Olympics operates. You know, you've, you've heard the stories and you've got the memories of it as being a supporter and you've even had old guys like me tell you what to expect. But the reality is everything that you think you know is irrelevant and when you get there, it is incredible in ways that you just can't imagine until you actually live it. But the first one's a whirlwind and is overwhelming. The second one is stressful and difficult because it's, you know, defence. The third one, you're smarter, you're mature, you've got some time under your belt, you're a little bit more worldly. And for me anyway, Sydney was the first Olympics I went to and I actually, I actually appreciated what I was a part of and I was proud to be a part of it. And it was in, in Australia, which was just how, how lucky am I. And when I walked out behind the blocks for that race, it was the first and only time at the Olympics. I walked out behind the blocks and actually looked at and listened to the crowd. And, oh, my God, what a crowd. A wedge of 8,000-odd people up one side of the pool with this angled roof that just injected noise and energy down. And like the energy that I physically felt, I've never felt anything like it and I don't think I'll ever feel it again. Like you just... It just went through you and you were absorbed into it. It was just, it was unbelievable. And then, of course, getting up, standing on the blocks and swimming, you know, what ultimately was a great race for me, um, fastest I'd swum in four years. It was quicker than I swam in, in, in Atlanta to win. Um, you know, I just came second. And um, thankfully, I came second to an Aussie. So we didn't lose the 1500, which was um, a little bit of uh, comfort. But, you know, I would have uh, traded places with Grant uh, every day of the week and twice on Sundays, uh, given the chance again. And that's, uh, that's only to be expected as a competitor. Sense of relief when it was all over? Oh, huge. You know, I think if I look at my career, the last, like the leading to Sydney in many ways was more about obligation than true love. My career up to, up to Atlanta was true love. And I did it because I, I was passionate and wanted to succeed and be the best I could be. After that, I probably came back from Atlanta and started training again entirely through obligation because it's a home Olympics, you have to do it. I'd always had a, in the back of my mind, I wanted to win three in a row and be the first male in swimming in history to history, do it yeah. and to replicate our greatest female um, Olympian, Dawn Fraser. But it was hard and it was hard. And I, I, I you know, I, I think when I look back on it, the biggest mistake I made was waiting like taking nine months to recover from Atlanta. I needed it mentally, but I, I physically I should have kept going because the, the mountain to climb to get my fitness and my strength and my, my background back, um, it, it, I mean, it took me right up till the Sydney Olympics to get it. And 
if I'd have started six or eight months earlier, by the time I got to Sydney, I would have been a lot, lot more, a lot stronger, a lot more practiced than I was at that point in time. So I, you know, I, I didn't make it easy on myself, but, but you know, please don't confuse that with regret or or, or disappointment because you know I, I swam epically well. You know, I touched the wall, and when it was over, you know, one of the great tests for a lot of us in life is. You know, when you look yourself in the eyes in the mirror and ask yourself, did I do my best today? And when the answer is, yep, that's a nice feeling and that's a, a, a relief. And then when the, the next question is, is there anything else I need to prove to myself? Is there any other goal, any other challenge, any other thing that I need to pursue? And when the answer is, nope, you're the happiest retired person on the planet. And I can tell you, I walked away from the pool in Sydney the happiest retired swimmer you've ever met in your life because there's not been a millisecond since then when I've wondered, thought about, wanted to, or even contemplated going back swimming. Um, I'm I'm a happy retired swimmer. I've, I've been there, done that, and got other things to do now. So how old were you, 28, when you retired? I was, yes. Yeah. Okay, so 28 years old. What happens the next week, the next month, to all the, <laughs> to all the top athletes? How do you land on your feet? And how do you deal with not necessarily having that intensity anymore? I would say that no one lands on their feet. I think everybody lands on their head um, with a resounding thud because um, no matter how prepared you think you are, the reality is, is that you go from this life where you, everyone around you is there to support you and working with you to get you to where you want to be. You've got other teammates. Like, like you, you're in a whole bubble of this universe of people who are there doing it with you they understand it they know why and they're a part of it you also have this thing in the back of your head that every day you wake up no matter where you are no matter what you're doing you know why you're doing it you know the purpose and you know where it's taking you i mean when i was swimming any morning i could wake up and if you'd have said to me when are the olympics i'd have known within days and i'd have known what part of my cycle i was in the training that had to come the racing that was coming next, like the purpose of your life is clear and obvious and, and the pathways laid out in front of you, you know where you're going. You wake up the morning after you retire, all of the people are gone, all of the purpose is gone and you literally wake up and go, right, what now? Um, and that's brutal and it's hard and it is a ugly, ugly and challenging journey. Some of us are fortunate enough to have a have a family around us who put up with us and guide us through it, um, and friends that that are there for you, and you get to do it privately. Um, unfortunately, some people do it very publicly, but every one of us crashes and burns, and is an awful human being for periods of time. Um, is a depressed human being for periods of time, and you have to live through it to understand it and be able to hopefully get out the other side of it and work out who you are, what your purpose is in life, what value you can bring to the universe, and then find an activity that you can do that helps you uh, use that. So for all those athletes who come back from Tokyo who do retire, and the energy just said they're going to go for that pretty tough period of time somewhere along the line, isn't there any sort of body, that doesn't the sporting body provide any support in any, any way? Yeah, no, it is terrible. Um, it's horribly brutal, but it is a fact of life. And the problem is that, you know, Olympic sports don't have the funding to put in programs for life after. 
you know, there is elements of it, like there's some education that leads into it. But let's be honest, no athlete wakes up in the morning um, really believing that there is life after. Because if you really believe there's life after, you're not committed to life now. So, you know, it's they, they'll give it lip service, but it doesn't really sink in. Um, and then afterwards, there is crisis management, mm -hmm. but you'd like to think that, I mean, look, all things being equal, I'd love nothing more than to see, you know, lots of work put into providing programs that actually help people not descend into crisis and catch them early and, and support them through. But it's just not there and it's and it's something that we we talk about some people are trying to do work with but it need it needs more effort and and attention I, I completely agree with you my advice to them though is that it doesn't have to be destroying actually the greatest gift that any of anyone can have in life but any athlete especially elite athlete can have in life um, is friends whether it's a friend or a group of friends but you need someone in your life that can front you and say, hey, Karen, you're being a complete dickhead. You aren't special. You're not actually better than the rest of us. And you need to pull your head in and recognize that you're a human being and that human being is as equal value as every other person on the planet. And the only reason why you might be different to us is because of what you do, not who you are. And you need friends like that. You need those friends who can keep you honest, who can keep your ego in check because, you know, when that moment of crisis comes, if there's nobody in your life that has permission to wrap their arms around you and hug you and tell you it's going to be okay, I'm here for you and I'll support you, and you truly, truly believe it because you know that that person is not there to take advantage of you. They're not there because you're famous or you're rich or you're, going to give them tickets to something they're they're there because your whole life they have been a person who actually loves you for the human being you are if you've got someone like that truly in your life and they're there when you need them you'll be fine but it's really hard to find those people especially when you do get to that level of success and fame because there's hangers on everywhere and everyone yeah. wants to know you because you're a genius and it's really nice surrounding you with people who tell you you're amazing every day and and, and are there to pander to your ego because, you know, um, we've all got one of those. So um, so so being self-aware enough to be able to truly know the difference between your friends and those people who are associates that have time and place value is is a um, it's a hard thing to have real uh, real awareness around. But if you can find that and you can find those people, you'll be all right. So how did you find banking? So I, I fortunately had 10 years between retiring and starting banking because I, I have no doubt that if I'd have gone straight from swimming to banking, it would have gone really badly. Um, and it would have gone really badly because, you know, when, as I said, when you come out of swimming or you're in an elite sport like that, everyone around you every day is trying to be exceptional in their level, in their belief, like in the thing they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. But every day you're looking for the, the 1% to do improve to be better, to be exceptional. And then you join corporate life. And this is not, this is not a bank bash thing because every corporate environment is exactly the same. Less than 2% of the people you come across are absolutely actually really that way. Yep. And you've got every scale of person in between from those that are just there to punch their ticket because it's a paycheck, which allows them to then go the thing they really care about through to the other end where people that are really passionate and believe and want to do well. 
And it takes time to actually understand that and be able to get into that culture and that environment and not lose one of the really core things which, you know, um, I, I, I've always believed and held and I think sports helped me have the, you know, um, ignorant, optimistic view about it. But, you know, my core belief in people holds it right to the end. Every single one of us are valuable and have the potential to be amazing at something. And every business leader's responsibility is to make sure that those people that work for you can be lifted into their genius in the right role, in the right place that helps the organisation ultimately succeed. And you need lots of troops to do that, you know. You need those people that just there love churning through widgets every day, doing mind-numbing work because they get to then go home and do the things that they're really passionate about in life right through to those people that will do whatever it takes to succeed and need to be constrained and guided to do it responsibly and appropriately so that everybody else in the chain is able to shine and thrive and be successful in the roles you need them to play for an organisation to ultimately succeed and be amazing. And, you know, banking is, is a really interesting environment. Um, you know, obviously the last few years have been challenging to say the least. And the decade that, or a bit over now that I've been involved in banking, I clearly missed the best times. But at its core, every single day, we help Australians buy their home or build their business and do things that they can't save money themselves to do. And at its core, it's a truly noble profession that, you know. Sounds like a TV advert us, coming on here, Karen. It's not a TV advert. Sorry? You're not doing a TV advert, are you? No, no absolutely not. Because you know what? If you don't have people like me who truly believe that in the industry, then we're all stuffed. Yeah, right? fair enough. You know, um, but I truly believe that actually the country and the people in Australia cannot succeed without banking. And it's beholden on us to actually understand the epic responsibility that that, that is. Like, really, if you sit and stop and think about it, I mean, that's, it's a frightening responsibility. Like, the reliance on us is incredible. And therefore, we deserve to be held accountable. We deserve to be held in higher esteem. And we deserve to be punished when we don't do the right thing. And I think what, what's been hard over the last um, number of years is that that, that that swing to accountability and punishment has gone well beyond what's good for anybody and needs to be a little bit more balanced back into a recognition that we need to be accountable and held responsible and we need to do the right thing. But for Australia to truly succeed, we also need to be able to go out and eliminate back people because there are so many amazing entrepreneurs, so many amazing business people, so many amazing aspiring homeowners that haven't actually quite got the proof that they're going to be successful. But when you sit across a table and you look them in the eye, you just know, man, I, I, that person's going places and I want to be there for that ride. I want to see them succeed and I want to help them get there. And unfortunately, the regulatory environment that we live in now makes it very, very, very difficult to do that because we have to be able to prove beyond doubt that the customer can afford to repay us. And sometimes in life, those people you want to back can't quite prove it, but you, you see their character, you see their plans, you see their opportunity, and you'd love to be there for them. And we, 
We just need to get the balance back in life where actually the banks are unconstrained to be able to back those people that deserve to be backed, while in the vast majority, support those people um, to do the things that they should do and be brave enough to be able to say no when actually this is not the right thing for you and this is not going to succeed um, and no, we, we shouldn't do that. We need that balance back. But I look, I, I, I do love what I do. Um, you couldn't be involved in the industry if you didn't at that core level. But, you know, the caveat, and it's always fascinating when people talk about banking, it's a word that encapsulates a very large financial industry. Yeah. I enjoy retail customer banking. I'm not sure that I, you're, you're never going to see me on Wall Street and you're probably not going to see me, you know, trading derivatives or uh, building, you know, epically complex and interesting um, financial instruments. I like doing the simple core stuff that um, helps our customers achieve their, uh, their life goals. Well, you've got a new role now coming ahead, haven't you? I do. I, and it's, um, it's an exciting one. It's one that makes me uh, equal parts nervous and, and, and excited, which is 1st of July, I'm starting as a CEO of the Australian Unity Bank. And it's a very different space, you know, moving into a member organisation, into, into the mutual banking space into a small bank that is part of a much larger, you know, member organisation that has businesses across private health insurance, wealth, super um, aged care, et cetera. So, you know, it's, um, it's going to be a bit of a different environment, but um, at its core, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. And look, you know, one of the things that I, I, I probably don't, I haven't touched on so far in our conversation, but, you know, is really also very important for me in many ways the things I actually love most about my job, I could do anywhere. You know, I what I really truly love every day about working as a leader is, you know, having an amazing team of people around me and lifting them to be the best that they can be. You know, I, I am actually one of those leaders that does believe that I should be the dumbest person in my team and that everyone around me should be amazing geniuses at what they do that I facilitate and support and lift and enable to do incredible things because if I do that, our business will be amazingly successful and I will reap the rewards of that. And doing that in, I mean, you can do that in any field where you've got teams of people you need to lead to lead to lift and grow. Um, I guess, you know, I chose banking um, uh, over a decade ago and that's where my, my career effort and development's gone into and that's where my journey continues. But, you know, what I'm really looking forward about taking on this role at Australian Unity is, you know, I will have that responsibility as the um, accountable executive. I'll, I've got a board to uh, report to and I've got a, a group of colleagues and members who are relying on me to support them to be successful and that's um, something to be really uh, excited by. You talked a little bit about theory there a minute ago, Kieran, uh, where you're going to be the dumbest person in the room and you're going to be surrounded by the all-stars. You see it enough during during your time in in banking or across corporate? And that's the first part. The second part, what is leadership to you then? Look, I think like everything in life, you see all sorts of variations of it, right? Like I see, yes, I see amazing leaders that have teams like that. And, you know, you see plenty of examples of leaders who actually surround themselves with people who are never going to threaten them because it allows them to be the, the biggest person in the room. You know, and I, and I think for me, the cliche, you learn more from your bad leaders than your good leaders at times. And so I'm I'm always really cognizant of making sure that while I want to be the best leader that I can be, 
you know, I also ensure that I, I, I help my people learn and grow along the way. And for me, leadership is very much that, that facilitation of the creation of successful genius around you. And, um, you know, if you can guide and support that and provide that, you're winning. And, and you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of subcategories that come into that, which, you know, you, you want to dig into and talk about because it's, it's a new, like for me, like most things in life, there's a nuanced conversation that comes with it. There's lots of things that are important that are part of it. You need diversity. You need people who are going to challenge you. You need to actually have a lot of trust in your team so that, you know, they can look at you and say, hey, boss, this isn't right. This isn't a good thing. You need to step back from this and think about it more. Or you need to explain to me why you want me to do this and why as somebody who trusts you and trusts your leadership is going to go, I'm not sure that this is right, but okay, I, I, I'm on the journey with you. I'm on the bus. I'm going to do this. You know, the the safety that needs to be built in a team and that flat hierarchy and the trust to enable everybody to contribute equally is incredibly important. And you know, and on it goes. I mean, there's a whole lot that goes in it. But I, but I think you know, as a leader, um, you know, I want my people to trust me. I want them to believe that they can challenge me. I want to have good diversity of thought in the room so that you know I can really. Um, learn from them because I, I I enjoy finding genius in everyone around me and really being challenged to think differently about things because I, I feel like I'm growing. But ultimately, I want us to to actually succeed together. And I think as a leader, if you recognise that success is a joint accomplishment and not an individual one, you, you've got a better chance of winning. Well, I wish you very all the good luck um, in your new endeavour. I'd like to finish up on one final question for JK Kieran. If you were to look back at that young a young man who charged for that, that class, cut open his calf muscle and wound himself up in hospital, then found himself in a pool and rehabilitating. What advice would you give him now? Enjoy the hard work. Make sure that every day you're doing what matters most that day and trust in yourself that if you do those things and you continue to learn from those experiences that you will be successful in whatever it is that you put your mind to. On that, Kieran, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations.